with respect to what people can actually do, I think the acid test is keeping the planet's interest first and foremost. And the planet really only cares about one thing. It cares about total CO2 emissions. It doesn't care if you recycle, basically. It doesn't care if you compost. It doesn't care if you buy offsets uh, that don't pr produce carbon reductions. When a forest land owner reduces timber harvesting and there's no change in the demand for timber products, there's going to be a no. displacement of timber harvesting to somewhere else. So you're reducing carbon loss on the participating lands, but it's causing an increase in carbon loss somewhere else. We hear a lot about what we can possibly do to battle climate change and what we can do to reduce our carbon footprints. On this episode of The Pie, we're going to take a close look at the value of carbon offsets. Who are they benefiting? And how can we rethink this solution? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, released on Earth Day 2021, we're going to be talking about reducing carbon emissions. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. The vast majority of scientists agree that we're in a climate emergency. Governments and corporations all around are talking about measures to cut carbon emissions. I talked to Michael Greenstone, distinguished professor in economics at the University of Chicago and director of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics. He's also the director of the Energy Policy Institute. Greenstone is also involved in an environmental nonprofit called Carbon Vault. And Barbara Haya, a research fellow at the Center for Environmental Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Honestly, I feel like I've been hearing about carbon offsets and being and being offered them when I book flights for years now, and they're just they're just kind of background noise. Michael, I wonder would you care to disabuse me of that notion that they're really not making a difference? And perhaps as you do that, a really simple explanation of, of what carbon offsets are and kind of how long they've been around. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Tess. Uh, I think the way to think about carbon offsets is that lots of people and increasingly organizations want to do something about their carbon footprint. Uh, a lot of that, some of that's coming from failures in government policy, and some of it's just coming from they would like to lead a life where they feel like they're not contributing to climate change. And one way to do that mm -hmm. is finding ways to offset their carbon emissions. That involves figuring out what carbon emissions are causing and then finding a way to undo it. So how do they work? So the way they work is you figure out how many tons of CO2 are associated with doing something like, say, taking an airplane ride. And then you go and find someone who is emitting carbon and essentially pay them to reduce their carbon emissions by exactly as much as the activity that you're going to do, like, say, flying. And when was this mechanism designed? How long has it been around? The first major carbon offset program was under the UN's Kyoto Protocol. It allowed industrialized countries um, the opportunity to invest in projects anywhere in the world that reduce emissions as a way to meet their emissions reduction targets. And the whole idea was that it doesn't matter where the reductions happen. Greenhouse gases are well mixed in the atmosphere. So if it's cheaper for industrialized countries to invest in projects elsewhere, why shouldn't they be able to do that? 
I just want to underscore something Barbara's saying. That's the very, very powerful idea of offsets and why they apply with respect to carbon, which is the world or planet does not care if the emissions happened in Mumbai or in Detroit. Mm. And so if you are doing something that causes emissions in Detroit and you can find somebody in Mumbai who will exactly offset what you're doing, the planet is just as happy as if you hadn't done the activity from the start. And then the problem is, how do you know that when you're paying someone else to reduce emissions, that you're actually reducing emissions. Well, so let's talk about what I alluded to earlier, that this is just kind of background noise and that I I don't really understand how this possibly works. Again, because as you both have described, you know, something happens in Mumbai and is it like that butterfly that it affects the rest of the world? And so if you change it somewhere else, what's the difference? So Barbara, let me ask you, are offsets living up to their original intention? Are they working? No, they're not working. When a company or country invests in projects internationally that reduce emissions, the question is, are they really causing those emissions to happen? And research has clearly shown that the large majority of these projects are most likely projects that were going ahead on their own, regardless of the offset program. Mm. So what that means is that industrialized countries weren't really meeting their obligation to reduce emissions. Can you give a just a really real-world example of how that happened? So I did research in India on the projects that were happening there. There were mostly hydropower projects, wind power projects. And the issue was that these projects were cost effective on their own. Hydropower um, was being supported by the Indian government. Wind power in India had subsidies from federal and state governments. Many of these projects were already going ahead. And then This offset program allowed those business-as-usual projects to then generate credits that could be used by others to meet their emissions reduction obligation. Here's one example. So for wind power, I had a conversation with one consultant who supported wind power development in, in India, and he told me that he would put together two different balance sheets for a single project. One would go to the bank when they apply to a loan, showing that the project was cost-effective on its own. The other would go to the UN agency and the third-party verifier, showing that the project was actually not cost-effective on its own and it needed offset income to go forward. And there's nobody watching for this. Is that part of the problem that there's there's no kind of international overseer? The whole problem with the industry is that the quality is based on these subjective decisions about what projects really needed the income to go forward and what projects would have gone forward anyway. And those subjective judgments are being made by an industry where the major arbiters of quality have an interest in mm. a larger market and therefore in lenient rules. Michael, let me let me turn to you and ask is, you know, Barbara had a, a very plain word, which was no, this system is not working. Is that, would that be your assessment as well? I agree uh, with Barbara. Every six months, there's a new quote unquote scandal or expose that exposes 
some set of offset projects that were supposedly producing a given amount of carbon and are shown not to. You know, I think in especially telling piece of recent news, which is now the Nature Conservancy, like a totally august, high reputation environmental organization, is now investigating itself Mm -hmm. for its own offset policies. And this isn't new. You know, it has been happening since the beginning of offsets. And I think there's actually a structural problem, which Barbara was just getting to. And that structural problem is that the offset transactions benefit everyone who's involved except the planet. And so let me explain. You take uh, Tess, who wants to fly to from L.A. to Detroit. If she pays to undo the carbon emissions from that, she's going to feel better about that. She'll get some warm glow. So Tess benefits Absolutely. from that transaction, yes. Then the third-party uh, verifier, they're certainly going to benefit because they're going to shave uh, some of the money off of the amount the test paid. Uh, and then what's left is going to go to the offset provider. And they're certainly going to benefit because they're going to get some money. And, and Barbara's telling probably money for doing nothing. Uh, and everyone in that transaction is doing better except one entity. And that entity is the planet. And the problem is the, the planet mm. is not at the table. And so whether or not there are carbon reductions are almost irrelevant in the way these transactions are structured. Right. Well, which is why I don't buy them, because I feel like it's a -a whack-a-mole, right? That maybe I'm buying something, but I don't know where it goes, and maybe it's going to help somewhere, but then someone else is going to, you know, continue to spew carbon into the air. So what difference am I really making? That's the core problem. Barbara, I read some of your research on something called leakage in these offsets, having to do with, for an example, is the reduction of timber harvesting in one place on the planet. But that means that harvesting goes up somewhere else to meet demand. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So around half of all offsets generated in the U.S. are from so-called improved forest management projects. And they're... Over half? Yeah. Wow. When a forest land owner reduces timber harvesting and there's no change in the demand for timber products... Someone else is going to fill it. Someone else is going to fill it. There's going to be a displacement of timber harvesting to somewhere else. So you're reducing carbon loss on the participating lands, but it's causing an increase in carbon loss somewhere else. So this is exactly the whack-a-mole that I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. And the the protocols grossly undercredit the emissions from that displacement. You know, the whole thing just reminds me of the kid's book, Cat in the Hat, where the cat is like, balancing a spinning a ball on one hand got a fish tank on his head and like jumping up and down at the same time and trying not to let anything (laughs) drop so like yes in principle this system for offsets could work but it requires like an incredible sequence of events and as i've been trying to underscore it's not clear that the participants in, in in these transactions always have the incentives to make sure uh, that the CO2 reduction is delivered. But like uh, the starting point of all of this, of course, is this laudable sense that TESS, the airplane traveler, or some organization would like to make a contribution to climate change. So like in the thicket of details about additionality and leakage and the cat in the hat, like there is like a core idea there that's really important and comes from a very laudable starting point. 
And that is even extended, of course, to investing in the stock market. You know, this has become a real selling point for for shareholders, right? Companies can say that they're they're doing this and they're helping the world, and that's become this investing point in and of itself uh, with something called ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance investing, right? Michael, can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so there has just been a tidal wave of interest in ESG-style investing. And I think everyone is racing to come out with a new ESG forward investment strategy. There, too, I think that's coming from uh, a very, you know, admirable starting point, which is the people who own these stocks don't want to feel like they're making the climate problem worse. And so they're looking for a solution. And so the prototypical ESG solution is one that is like, okay. Let's either exclude fossil fuel companies from my portfolio or let's downweight them in some way. Let's own less than their proportionate share of the S&P 500. Right. And there, too, I think investors are kind of getting hoodwinked. And the way that they're getting hoodwinked is, yes, it is possible to reduce the number of fossil fuel companies in your portfolio or even totally kick them out. But if you apply the acid test, does the planet care? I think almost all of the time that ESG-style investing fails. And the reason it fails is if TESS removes the fossil fuel companies from her portfolio, it's very likely that someone else in the world is going to purchase the shares of those fossil fuel companies. And maybe there'll be some marginal increase in the cost of capital. And in some very, very long run, that will discipline the fossil fuel companies. But, you know, that's very indirect, And I think if you were interested in making reductions in carbon today, uh, I don't think you could have much confidence uh, that that form of ESG-style investing is reducing the planet's emissions today. Oh, man. So everything I'm trying is not working. (laughs) (laughs) Why is this happening? I think it's happening because we have a vacuum of global policy on CO2. And this is kind of people being frustrated about the vacuum of uh, forceful CO2 policy. And if you had forceful CO2 policy in the major economies around the world, we wouldn't be having this discussion. People wouldn't be searching uh, for ways to voluntarily participate. They would already be doing it through the rules and regulations that their governments have applied. After the break, how can we fix the offset market? And how should we think about our own roles in battling CO2? All right, so so here we we have this problem, too much carbon in the atmosphere. We get a solution, but that solution is problematic, yet it's still considered a huge selling point. So let's talk about some of the new solutions to the solution. So the European Union has laid down some rules just, just this year to regulate this sustainable finance industry. There's a task force that's involving the private sector, co-founded by a former he- uh, head of the Bank of England, Now, Barbara, I know you've been involved in making recommendations to that task force. What do those look like? What do you want to see happen? I see two directions that the offset market could go. One is to really rein in the quality and only credit those project types where we have real confidence that the credits represent real additional non-leaked permanent emissions reductions, that's going to be a much smaller market. Um, And I think that that's a direction that 
in many ways that we really need to go is for those purchasing those credits to really have confidence in those credits. This is a smaller, carefully designed market that targets those project types where there's relative certainty in the effect that they're having on the climate. I think there's a second direction that the offset market could go, and that is to really embrace the uncertainty. We're sort of in this world today where the credits don't necessarily represent quantified, verified tons of emissions reductions. So the market could also sort of embrace this uncertainty. And then we can't use those credits to really claim to meet carbon neutrality goals. And what those credits become is a way to invest in good things that have a quantity of reductions that are really hard to measure. Then we can think about the market as to what generally is worth it for those who are willing to put money into climate change mitigation. What are some of the best ways for those monies to be invested in projects and technologies that reduce emissions. And there's a wide range of things that that could become. So, Barbara, can I push back on that a little bit? What I'm concerned about in this space uh, is that we kind of lose track. Like, there's a single enemy here. There's not a diffuse set of enemies. The enemy is CO2 emissions and CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. And I get a little anxious when we start naming multiple goals here. And there are many, you know, admirable, laudable, important things to do in the world. But I feel like when it comes to mitigating climate change, there should be a laser focus on CO2. So, Michael, we've talked about the cat in a hat, and I'm going to take us back to the arcade with whack-a-mole real quick. So, um, you know, this notion that if I buy a carbon offset on a flight, that doesn't stop anyone else from flying, right? So what good does that really do? That That's what's in my head. But you're involved in an effort to stop the mole once it gets whacked, right? And you are talking about taking those credits out of circulation once they're bought. Yeah, I think there's a couple parts to it. The, the first and the starting point, which comes directly from the series of observations Barbara has made in our conversation, is that my view has been for really a decade is, hey, people want to do something about their carbon footprint. It's a totally reasonable and good thing to do. We should celebrate it. Why isn't there an easy button? Why does it have to be so hard? Why do we have to care about leakage? Why do we have to care about additionality? Right. All those things. So the starting point of Climate Vault, which is a nonprofit that I've launched, is, well, there's an answer staring us in the face, and it's pretty simple. And that is the state of California, the province of Quebec, and 10 New England states have all started cap-and-trade programs for CO2 emissions. And the defining feature of those uh, markets is that there's an absolute limit on the total amount of CO2, and that's enforced by those jurisdictions. It's not enforced by some third party. It's enforced by those jurisdictions. And the idea is instead of funding a forest project in Brazil, you could go into those markets, purchase permits to the right to pollute, remove them from those markets, and then that would you would have great confidence that there would be a one-for-one relationship between what you took out and global CO2 emissions. I think cap-and-trade markets are such a great launching point for beginning this. They really offer two features that I think turn this into the easy button. The first is 
you can totally free ride on the enforcement capabilities of California and the 10 New England states and Quebec. Their whole job is to make sure that everyone who emits has to hold a permit. So if you take a permit out, there's going to be one less ton inside that jurisdiction. And so it kind of removes the credibility issues. And then the second thing which we haven't talked about is people are not going to devote limitless resources to this. This is like on a, as we've been talking about, it's like a voluntary action. Uh, And, you know, what the planet would like is for the largest carbon bang for the buck. And the power of those markets is that they are delivering the cheapest tons of reductions available, at least in those jurisdictions. And that removes the need to become an expert on whether or not a forestry project in Brazil or a forestry project in Maine or a wind project in India is giving more bang for the buck. Like the market's figuring all that out uh, for you. Hmm. And it, it's very two very appealing features of relying on those markets. So let me come back around to Earth Day. Last year marked 50 years since since the first one. Last year, the Pew Research Center found that two-thirds of U.S. adults say the federal government isn't doing enough to reduce the effects of climate change. 63% say stricter environmental regulations are worth the cost. Where do these potential reforms to carbon offsets fit into kind of where we are now, especially when most people don't understand them, how they work, and how they don't work. Barbara, I'll start with you. What I normally advise people to do, whether it's individuals or or corporations, given the state of the offset market today, is to reduce your own emissions. You are always going to be responsible for your own emissions, and that's the most important thing. Second most important thing is to help to reduce emissions in ways that is connected to your business. And, you know, circling back, Michael, to to what you mentioned about co-benefits and don't we need to just really focus on carbon? The point that I was trying to make there is that, yes, we need to be reducing emissions, but given the uncertainty and given the questionable quality of many of the credits on the market, that actually opens us up to think more creatively about if we're going to be investing in climate mitigation in some proportion to our emissions, there are many ways that we can do that to have a real impact on the climate. And it could be by supporting work done you know, locally by your county or by schools. It could be working and supporting an organization you trust that's doing good work locally or anywhere in the world, or it could be supporting projects that claim quantified emissions reductions. But in any of those cases, what you're really doing is thinking about where do I want to invest the money that I'm spending on climate mitigation? And where do I see myself as being able to have the biggest impact with those funds? Michael? Yeah. So listen, I think it's absolutely terrific that so many people and organizations want to do something to contribute to climate change. That was not true 15 years ago. And that's, I think, to be celebrated. With respect to what people can actually do, I think the acid test is keeping the planet's interest first and foremost. And the planet really only cares about one thing. It cares about total CO2 emissions. It doesn't care if you recycle, basically. It doesn't care if you compost. It doesn't care if you buy offsets uh, that don't produce carbon reductions. And my own view 
is that what needs to happen is after maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 25 years, it's time to totally disrupt the offset market. And Mm. I think the way to do that is to rely on two things, the availability of cap and trade markets for CO2 that are highly effective, highly credible at reducing CO2 emissions, uh, and also launching the innovation that's going to be so critical uh, for getting carbon removal. Well, happy Earth Day to both of you, and thank you so much for the conversation. Happy Earth Day, Tess. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 